what Newbigin said is that Western culture after Islam is the most challenging culture of all human cultures into which to bring the gospel. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley and welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. In today's episode, we're going to talk with Dr. Gavin Ortland about what kind of apologetics we need now. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like news, sports, pop culture, whatever, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, uh, let's talk politics, namely the search for the next Speaker of the House. Hey everyone, I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. On October 3rd, Kevin McCarthy was voted out as the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, and he's the first Speaker of the House to ever be ousted. At the time of the recording, no new Speaker has been elected, though by the time you are listening to this, that might have changed. So Dr. Keithley, some questions for you. Number one, for those of our listeners who don't know, what is the Speaker of the House? And then why the controversy and why right now? First question that you ask, what is the Speaker of the House? The Speaker of the House is the one who has been elected to be in charge over the House of Representatives. It's a remarkably important position in that, first off, whoever he or she is, they're third in line to be president of the United States. If for some reason both the president and the vice president could not serve, the Speaker of the House would be the one who would then step in to the role of President of the United States. So it's an incredibly important position in that regard. Uh, It's also uh, very important because, as I said, um, he or she would be over the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives has always been a raucous body. Our Congress, with our House of Representatives and our Senate, uh, is based... Uh, modeled loosely uh, over uh, from the English model, which they have the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And in fact, m- in many ways, our original Senate almost operated like a House of Lords in that uh, our original sen- senators uh, under the Constitution as it was in the beginning, they were not elected by a popular vote. They were selected by the legislative bodies of the respective states. So originally, the senators was something that was distinct and separate from a popular vote. As I said, that changed, and and it's made uh, the senators much more in touch with the will of of the people, uh, which was a good thing. The representatives, as I said, they were always intended to represent the common people. So it was a proportional vote. You think about it, you get two senators for every state which is a remarkable way that our system is set up. This means that Wyoming, that only has a half a million people in the whole doggone state, uh, has two senators. Our Rhode Island, that is so very small, they get two senators. Well, Texas and California, Texas has 18 million. California has almost 40 million. They only get two senators. So you could see how, how, how that makes the senators for those small states very powerful. To offset that, 
the House of Representatives are, are proportionate to, uh, to population. And so Wyoming has only one representative in the House of Representatives, Why, while Texas and California have dozens and dozens and dozens proportionate to population. Here's an interesting fact. The way that the Constitution originally had it, uh, there, should, there should be one representative for every 30,000 people. Well, obviously our original framers could not imagine a, a nation of, of over 300 million. So by the time we come around to the early 1900s, uh, it's up to 435. Uh, and so they passed an amendment to cap it at 435, uh, which is um, a fairly unwieldy group. If, if a they lot had, of people. If they had <laughs> continued today, we would have thousands would be in the House of Representatives. So, so think of that. So it's always been a unwieldy circus, if you will. I mean, there's a history of that. But, so that's what's going on. But the House of Representatives, that's the House that does all of the appropriations. I mean, budget matters always originate. So for us not to have a Speaker of the House means all of that is stopped. Well, that's a big deal whenever you think of things such as we're looking at another government shutdown in a few weeks, and that's not been touched. We also have the various worldwide emergencies, such as what's going on in Israel, what's continuing to go on in Ukraine, we are at a bit of a standstill without a speaker or a speaker who's able to actually ride roughshod over that group. So what does it say to us? Well, it says that we're in a very polarized time. I mean, we are now driven by the extremes on both the left and the right. And that's not particularly healthy. The House of Representatives, by their very nature, has to be it's it's it, there's a bit of horse trading. There has to be consensus. Uh, there has to be compromise, and that some of that can be less than pleasant to watch. I mean that that is what's going on. Uh, that's how it's supposed to happen. And with things so polarized, it it's it's having difficulty for that happening. And so there is such a slim majority on each. You know, whenever the Democrats were uh, it, it, leading just a few years ago, they had a very slim majority. However, they were able to keep party discipline was much better. Right now, the Republican Party itself is so very divided that the Democrats are all voting as a block. So with Republicans divided, and yet they're the majority party, nothing happens. It also speaks a little bit to, in some ways, to the lack of seriousness that, that some are approaching uh, the situation. I mean, it is, it is a bit disappointing to see the posturing. This is where making sure that your crowd on, on Twitter and social media is liking what you're doing, that's a little disappointing, but that, that is what's going on. Um, it also says just a little bit that um, the confidence that we have that our institutions can handle us being silly, there, there's a bit of that. Uh, where we know that uh, we are in a very secure situation. We're not in a situation like, well, what's going on in Israel. Now, there's a country that, that they have to pull together because they're in an existential crisis. We're not anywhere close to that. Uh, we, we have troubles. We have problems. But we're not concerned about, I mean, you hear people talking about how they think, you know, are we going to last? Well, of course we are. Uh, this, we're not, this is not the end of the Roman Empire. I mean, all one has to do is look at our history. 
we've we've managed to get through the Civil War. We managed to get through civil rights. The kinds of things we're dealing with now uh, don't rise to that kind of level. However, one of the things that certain parties are really emphasizing, you know, it really there really are problems coming up, and particularly the massive national debt, which is what certain parties, the the conservative, ultra conservative wing, are wanting us to look at. They have a point. They have a point uh, that if we don't address some of our long-term systemic issues, we will find that our spending will go out of control. You say, well, what would that look like? We're already seeing it a little bit um, with with inflation being the way it is. Why, why is inflation a problem uh, in our country today? Well, there's a number of problems, but pr- perhaps the biggest problem is the fact that we don't that we're, we're running up a trillion dollars in, in debt every year. Let's just remember what inflation is. Inflation is an invisible tax. Uh, if, you, if, if they don't, can't raise the money or cut the spending, they do deficit spending. What is the result of deficit spending? Inflation. Uh, and so uh, if you're wondering why it is that now a hamburger costs $12, uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are that spending's out of control in in Congress. So those are the the, the drivers that's driving the situation that we see today. So maybe not the end of the world, but still some serious issues that we need to continue to monitor and pray about. And I'm sure we'll address these again moving forward in the Christ and Culture podcast. Dr. Keithley, thank you for your uh, perspective on that. And now let's get to our conversation with Gavin Ortland. Here at Southeastern, we know that our global Great Commission impact is only made possible by faithful ministry partners and supporters like you, who share our vision for equipping students to make disciples through the local church and around the world. On Giving Tuesday, November 28th, we invite you to join us by giving to support our Great Commission efforts. To give now or to learn more about how your giving can have an eternal Great Commission impact, visit sebts.edu give. So what is the state of apologetics? And to discuss today, we're glad to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Gavin Ortland. Gavin serves as senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. Am I saying that right? You got it right. Okay, well, good. Uh, Gavin's the author of a number of books, including Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, uh, The Beauty of Christian Theism, And again, a book that's coming out, Why Protestantism Makes Sense, The Case for an Always Reforming Church. In addition, he runs the YouTube channel, Truth Unites. Dr. Ortland, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Well, I'm really thrilled to have you on our campus this week. I'm looking forward to this conversation about apologetics. So let's start by defining some terms. What do we mean by apologetics? Yeah. Well, I I like to start with 1 Peter 3.15. Great verse. Many of us have heard of this verse. So there's a phrase in that passage that says, be prepared to give a defense. And I love that little phrase. I think that gives us a mandate for every single Christian. Peter is writing to the church as a whole. He's not writing to some special elite group. He's saying that all Christians should be prepared to give a defense. What I love about that passage is it is the overflow of worship. So it starts by saying, always sanctify Christ in your heart, comma, being prepared. 
So apologetics will be the overflow of our personal love for Christ, our reverence for Christ, our devotion to Christ. And then it says do it with gentleness and respect. So apologetics has to come across in the, in the spirit of Christ. It can't be combative. It, 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 should, be, uh, it should reflect the beauty of Jesus to people. But it's a matter of, of faithfulness to following Jesus for every single Christian. I think we could—so if we're thinking of it as a broad definition, we could just say it's being prepared to give a defense of our faith. That could be even something simple like sharing our testimony. That can be a form of giving a defense of our faith, just sharing how Christ has worked in our life. I think as we get a little more technical or specialized in the definition of it, then we're looking at arguments for God's existence from philosophy, arguments for the resurrection of Jesus from history, and you can get very high level in those areas. But I think it's helpful to start just at the basic level that every Christian should be prepared to give a defense. I like how you say that apologetics is to flow out of worship mm. because apologetics, the whole um, activity of, of, of argumentation and giving defenses, uh, sometimes it can attract someone who has a rather pugnacious personality. And that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as that personality is being sanctified by the fruit of the Spirit. You know, they, mm. uh, and so I think it's really a, a good thing that you said here. So through the years, there's been a variety of forms of apologetics. Mm. Um, what would you say are the best ways to do apologetics in the 2020s? Mm. It, it does seem as though the needs change over time. You know, I remember reading John of Damascus back in the 7th century, and he was responding to the challenge of Islam. And that's a form of apologetics. Yeah. You know, you're defending right. the faith in a particular cultural context. Obviously, the needs today are very different. Uh, I think of Leslie Newbegin, who left right. to go to India in 1936 and did missions work there for nearly four decades. When he came back in 1974 to England, he said that Western culture was now a greater mission field than India had been when he left. And so his, his uh, approach to apologetics adapted? Yes, but he pointed out that the churches in England had been under-responsive to the changes, and they weren't adapting enough to effectively bring the gospel to people, to Western culture. Can we tease that out just for a second? Because I think where you're headed with this is the churches in England were under-responsive because there were certain cultural things they took for granted. And the reason I'm asking that is because, you know, we're in the Southland here. This is what's known as the Bible Belt. Mm. What was going on in England then, and, and how might that parallel with what we're experiencing today mm-hmm. in the United States? Well, this is exactly where I, was, where I was thinking, is that as the needs continually change, we have to keep adapting and listening, and we can't simply assume that the questions that are on the table today are the same, you know, even since 1974 and to today, the culture in the West has changed so much, honestly, even in the last 10 years, the yeah. culture has changed. It seems as though the rate of change is the increasing. curve keeps going up faster and faster. Exactly. And it's so challenging. And the the basic takeaway that I, you know, Leslie Newbegin had a lot of insightful things to say, but the basic thing that I take away from his experience there is just that we have to think of our own culture as a mission field. And sometimes in a place where you have lots of churches, you think of the mission field as somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But the people right around us are part of our mission field. And what Newbegin said 
is that Western culture, after Islam, is the most challenging culture of all human cultures into which to bring the gospel. And I think we have to think about what are the needs right now. So to finally get to your question of what do we need right now in the 2023, there are so many things, but one thing I think about is the role of beauty in apologetics. Mm, this I is like this. this is my great uh, passion, uh, is that sometimes apologetics has emphasized the truth of the gospel more than its goodness and beauty. And I think we need to go back to some of the great thinkers in the Christian tradition, like Blaise Pascal, who helped us think about the true, the good, and the beautiful. All of those are instantiated by the gospel. And we have the privilege of helping people in our culture see the good news of Jesus Christ really is not just true, though it is that. It is good and beautiful. It touches the deepest longings of the human heart. It, we never touch bottom in how joyful it is. It means fellowship with God, and that means infinite joy. And I think we have the the fun challenge of trying to help people mm-hmm. experience that and all that that entails in their lives. To your point, you know, you talk about Newbegin coming back to the West in the 1970s, which is when I became a Christian. And as a young Christian, I was taught evangelism methods, the four spiritual laws, the Romans road. And of course, what all of those methods assumed is that I, whenever I share my faith to whoever's sitting across the table from me, this person I'm sharing my faith with, he is sharing my worldview. Mm. Uh, that, that I can just open up uh, four verses in the book of Romans, talk about from Adam to Jesus to, to the person I'm talking to, and, and then bring the assumption closed question. Wouldn't you want to receive Christ? And, and, and what's, what that's all predicated upon is the notion that this person has probably gone to vacation Bible school, who he's been raised in an environment where maybe he's not in church, but his mom and dad love Jesus, and he needs to love Jesus too. By the time we come to the end of the 20th century, uh, you know, you can realize, no, I, as I'm sharing my faith with someone, I, I find out that really we may have to go back to square one. They mm-hmm. don't even share the same worldview that I have. Mm-hmm. They, they don't have the same approach to, the, to they don't believe the Bible like I do. Mm-hmm. And so this means that I'm going to have to be more basic in my approach to sharing my faith with someone. So I think, I think that's uh, a, a very helpful thing. And especially... Um, I, I like what you did next where you talked about, okay, we've talked about what is true. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about what's good and beautiful because I think the number one challenge facing us, uh, I've spent the summer dealing with a study group that's working with sexual identity mm-hmm. and transgenderism and uh, LBGTQ questions. And the thing that it's become so clear to me is that um, it isn't just that people don't, is Christianity true or not? They don't really think that Christianity is good. Mm-hmm. You know, convincing them that we, we're not harming people. We are actually offering them a message that helps. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's really important. So what kind of questions would you say, you know, you're, you're on the opposite part of the United States. You're mm-hmm. in California. What kind of questions are they asking over there? Yeah. What you just shared to me is is exactly what I'm seeing, and the, maybe one general way of putting it would be the shift from truth questions to goodness questions. If you're at a university giving a presentation 25 years ago, you're more likely to get questions like, uh, is the Bible true? Mm-hmm. Does God exist? These kinds of questions. 
or questions about exclusivity, you know? How can Jesus be the Savior? Today, it does seem like the goodness questions are more on the table. Is Christianity homophobic? Um, Are Christians intolerant? Questions, concerns about hypocrisy in the church? These things seem like they're more pressing and they're more cutting edge. And so we have to think about that and how to respond. And I I really learn a lot from the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, Mm. you know, to your point about how the culture has changed. In Acts 13, Paul gives a very basic gospel presentation when he's in the synagogue. Right. Because he can do a kind of four spiritual laws kind of presentation where he's basically quoting from the Hebrew scriptures and then saying, repent. (laughs) You know, Jesus is this Messiah. But in Acts 17, he gives us a model for how to function in a pagan context. And that's one way of thinking about our context. It's kind of neo-pagan in some ways. And he basically just starts further back with the doctrine of God and the doctrine of creation. And I find that really helpful and really interesting to think about what does it mean today to start with the, just the basic idea of God and creation, the, uh, the idea of createdness. Uh, those are uh, concepts, as, as you point out, we can't assume, and they're really helpful for people to hear that and have that clarified so that we have that background as we then get to talk about Jesus. So if you were going to try to sum it up, what would you say is the greatest challenge for apologetics today? Mm. At the street level, and this is going to take a little bit of a turn here in this answer, but as a pastor I see, I I do think the basic fear that many Christians have about apologetics and about evangelism, uh, a feeling of intimidation, like I can't do it, and maybe I have to say, and I'll say say this to my own life first and foremost, sometimes a lack of joy and enthusiasm about the gospel in Christians. Mm. The, at the, at the start, starting level, I think we, we need for the church to be, you know, Newbegin, to go back to him, talks about mission as the explosion of joy. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to talk about it. It changes everything. And it all starts there. I think that is the, f- the first need I like to address in the pew. You know, right. we want Christians to be excited about sharing their faith. And then, As we do that, I just think we need a more holistic approach where we're asking good questions, we're in dialogue. You know, sometimes it it is more simple. Sometimes someone—I've had times where God brings someone across my path who really does have some basic categories, and they really just need me to just shepherd them into the sinner's prayer. So that can happen, but just listening to to make sure we're not assuming that— and listening to their questions, and then just trying to give a full-orbed presentation of the beauty of Christ with all that that entails to the particular person we're talking to. Oh, that's great. Let me, uh, let me shift gears just a little bit. Mm. Uh, you are on our campus for this brief uh, time this week to give a talk on deconstruction. Mm. Define deconstruction. Ah, well, this is a bit of a controversial issue because it is used in such different ways. Right. And uh, some people, by deconstruction, refer to uh, a kind of refining process where we're taking apart our faith, we're thinking it through, maybe some things are being jettisoned or changed, but ultimately the goal is a more refined, purified faith. That would be a positive understanding of, of, of deconstruction. That's right, and some people are very uncomfortable with using that term for that process. And Would there be a better term? Well... It's very tricky because once a term starts getting used, Mm -hmm. it's hard to just uh, avoid common practice without being confusing. 
And uh, so I'm sympathetic because of the background with philosophers like Derrida. Mm-hmm. I'm sympathetic to some of the concerns of why would we use this term in this way. But it is happening, and that is how, what people understand by that term. But there is also – there's plenty of people who use deconstruction to refer to deconversion. And this is something we see a lot right now. It's a deep burden upon me. Uh, how, how do we respond? There are – go ahead. Yeah, well, go ahead. I mean you, you've used the word uh, deconstruction. And then you said deconversion. Mm-hmm. So define deconversion for us. Well, I just mean someone who leaves Christianity, someone who, who says, I am no longer, they, they have a Christian commitment, and then they say, I'm no longer a Christian. Okay. So you have deconstruction, deconversion. Is that the same, that you would understand that to be different from de-churching? Yes. Here's another interesting wrinkle to all of this, is that lots of people de-church without either deconversion or deconstruction. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a huge percentage of the population during, since COVID, and uh, not only uh, because of COVID, but also because of moving. You, lots of people have moved over the last few years. And so one of the things that happens is people move and they don't find a new church. But a lot of people who stopped going to church, so we call them uh, de-churched people, they still have relatively orthodox theology and a Christian commitment. So that's kind of another category of people that, as missiologists, we need to think about is how do we reach out to that group? And it's kind of a little bit of a different need there. A lot of the need will be invitation, relationship, uh, a sense of belonging, calling people into Christian community. And there may need be a little less persuasion because they may already have uh, relatively orthodox beliefs. They've just stopped going to church. So in your in your conversation about deconstruction, what's the approach that you're taking? How are, what terms are you going to be using? What concepts are you thinking of? Well, what I'm going to be sharing later today is about deconstruction in the sense of deconversion or short of deconversion, something close to that. People who are deconstructing in the sense that they are really questioning. They are really... It's it's uh, they're in angst, they're in pain, they are questioning whether they still want to be a follower of Jesus, whether how they could know if they're a follower. One of the things I've learned is people a lot of times they don't know exactly what they're going through. Mm-hmm. So you know I don't want to sort of over define it because for a lot of people those seasons I've been through not extreme versions but some mild seasons of that myself. A lot of times you're not sure exactly what is going on. That's part of the struggle. Yeah, and you and I have talked about this. I, we we both have had those times where we've gone through what Luther called the dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. where you really do ask, why am I doing this, and do I believe it like I say I do? And to your point, that's not necessarily a negative thing. Mm-hmm. That refining experience really does, you, you can find in those kind of experiences where it, you, it boils down to where you really do have Jesus before you and say, okay, mm-hmm. do I believe he is the son of God? Do, do, did he rise from the dead? Is he who he says he is? Who is this? Mm-hmm. And, and if you really do you know, arrive, well, he is the son of God. The four gospels are telling me the truth. All right, well, no matter what a mess the church is in, I know I'm centered on him. Mm-hmm. So, so if that's what we mean, then that's not necessarily a negative thing. Right. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening for so many. Right. So how would you describe what's happening for someone who is of a 
fairly evangelical background, like like you and me, where the new birth really means something, mm-hmm. and and that we we believe that uh, the, at at our conversion we we were regenerated, and this means now Jesus' spirit is within us, and there is that inner witness. And I know I'm being very subjective, but I think it's a I think it's a real thing that we're talking about. That has been a very powerful warrant. In other words, what I find is is that I I can't escape the call of Jesus. So sometimes I'm struggling whenever I hear about someone deconverting, and I'm thinking, okay, how did that happen? So in your studies, you know, some of those who deconverted, did they find out, well, I really didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was? Or is there something else going on here that can be, I mean, maybe they've been wounded in some ways that I'm not quite appreciating and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going on? Well, in my work in this area, I've learned that I need to be so careful to not make assumptions or to put these stories into one narrative because there are so many different situations. And one of the things that we can do, we're going to talk about this later today as well, is we can wound people if we make too many assumptions and put them in a a box and we don't really listen. So the, the two things that I'm really emphasizing in my own practice and wanting to try to encourage others toward is uh, a, a posture of calm curiosity toward our friends who are in deconstruction in which we practice listening with love. That's so we, we, we listen. We, we, we don't assume anything in advance. You know, someone once said, you're not listening until you're willing to be changed by what you hear. So I'm, open, I'm open-hearted to them. I'm, I'm really wanting to draw them out. What are you experiencing? Tell me. I don't, you know. And then, we, and then we love them. I think sometimes we forget that true Christians have doubts. Uh, the disciples had doubts. Thomas was not Judas. We can't treat the Thomases around us like Judas. And Simon Peter was not Judas. Exactly right. True Christians uh, struggle, uh, go through those seasons. We need to love people. And then, uh, but, I, but I love apologetics because I think apologetics helps. Apologetics helped me. There are compelling reasons to believe in Christ as both true and beautiful. And I want to help put those things in front of people as well because I think they can be like a life raft in, in the choppy waters for people. Gavin, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. And now it's time for our segment, On My Bookshelf, in which our guests tell us what they're reading right now. So, Dr. Ortland, what's on your bookshelf? Well, I'm going to mention a book that I go back to again and again. I've read it many times. Uh, people ask me how many times I've read it, and I say, I don't know because I never stop. Okay. <laughs> because uh, So the book is uh, C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, mm. the third book in the Space Trilogy, published in 1945. Not one of his better-known books, and it's a little bit bizarre, and some people don't know what to do with it. But, uh, I, I, you know, the first time I read it, I struggled with it, too. It's, it's a little bit of an eerie book. It has kind of a dark tone. It's kind of a dystopian book. It's influenced by Charles Williams. But the more I read it, like so much of C.S. Lewis, it's very profound. And I have it on my iPhone, so I listen to it uh, when I'm on an airplane or something like that. And what I find so valuable about it, it well, there's many things. The main theme of the book is its social criticism about Western culture, and there's lots to be learned about that. But what I love especially is the insight into these two characters in the book, and I won't really give too many spoilers here, but basically two characters in in the book have their defenses broken down. 
as they are resisting God, uh, and uh, the Lord breaks down their defenses and brings them to himself, but each of their stories is so different. And it reminds me that everyone's uh, objections, uh, idols, struggles, doubts are different, and God gets through to us in different ways. But the way that Lewis portrays that, I think, gives us one model of how many people find the Lord today. And oftentimes it's a more complicated process uh, of many different steps, many different dominoes falling before we're even ready to receive the gospel. And that just helps me as I think about evangelism, thinking about the idea of pre-evangelism, that there's many times in which I'll need to start further back. Before someone's ready to understand the gospel, I need to be talking with them about God truth, just the idea of truth, things like this, that book gives a great narrative picture of what that can look like. You know, uh, your your recommendation of Lewis and that particular work reminds me that there was a time whenever I spoke of his apologetic works and then his works of fiction. Uh, And I've and I came to appreciate, no, they're all works of apologetics, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, for, for Lewis, he understood that he had to talk about what, what is true, uh, books like Mere Christianity, but he then showed you that Christianity is beautiful mm-hmm. and it's good, and, I, and I, so I appreciate your recommendation. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Ortland. Um, now, tell us about your own books. Well, my, uh, my books are generally in the realm of historical theology for the most part, but there's sort of a, uh, I guess there's a span of them. So I have written a few popular level books. The most recent one is, is a book about humility that a friend invited me to write. It's called the Humility, the Joy of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a shorter pastoral book. It's all about basically that when we practice humility, life becomes more joyful, more free, uh, more human. Uh, my academic work has been in theologians like Anselm and Augustine and some of the great thinkers in the Christian tradition like this. I have one book in the realm of apologetics called Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. It's an argument for the existence of God, but it's also showing the beauty of theism and why, uh, trying to draw attention to some of the things you and I have talked about, uh, that basically Christianity enriches our view of the world. And where can they find your, your YouTube channel? My YouTube channel is called Truth Unites, and it should be easy to find. I talk about these kinds of things there, and I have links there to a lot of my books. So hopefully that won't be too hard for people to find. Excellent. Well, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed our podcast, give us a five-star rating and a brief review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.